Hello and welcome to Old Boy's View. I'm your host, Lawrence Coy, and our guest today is Qantas pilot Greg Fitzgerald. He flew with Qantas for 35 years, retired in January, and he's got some very interesting stories to tell. How are you going, mate? G'day, Laurie. I'm really well, thank you very much. Now, we're deep in lockdown in Sydney at the moment. Where have we found you? Uh, Laurie, just by sheer well, good luck, I happened to be out of Sydney when it all started and uh, in Sydney, and I, uh, I'm actually in Port Douglas right at the moment. Oh, mate, my heart bleeds for you. I don't know how you cope with it. But, uh, it's terrible. Somebody's got to do it, mate. Yeah. Go easy on those coral trouts and things like that for us while you're up there, okay, mate? I, I hate to think you're doing it too rough. Now, Greg, 35 years flying Qantas aircraft. That's a long haul, no pun intended. Yeah, a long time, Laurie. I've had a you know a, a career that I couldn't have dreamed of when I left school, but very lucky, but I wasn't always with Qantas. Well, tell us that story when you left school. I remember you, I should say actually, that Greg left in 1977, which was the same year as me. I remember you at school as being a, a quite a diligent student, but also a really fine athlete. You were in the first eight, and that was a that was a strong crew, that one. Uh, you didn't take the chocolates on the big day, but gee, you were a strong crew and, and very dedicated to your work. When you left school back in 77, what were you thinking career-wise? I can't say that when I left school, I was an absolute aviation geek, that passionate. I certainly had a keen interest in aviation, but to be quite honest, I didn't have the money to go out and learn to fly straight out of school, and neither did my parents have it to pay for me. So in some ways, I I fell into engineering because my brother had applied when he left school a few years before me for a cadetship. And he got a, an engineering cadetship with a large company. So I applied to cadetships where they put you through university and you work for the company at the same time. And I was lucky enough to uh, get an engineering cadetship with Australia's largest multinational company at that stage, which was Wormold. And so, uh, yeah, they paid for me to go and do a Bachelor of Engineering straight out of school. So aviation kind of went onto the back burner to start with. And it wasn't until five years later where I'd really saved the money to go uh, and learn to fly, and the passion had actually uh, kindled there, that I, I left engineering altogether and went down to what is called the uh, the academy in uh, Adelaide and learned to fly full-time. So you went to like a commercial flying school and got your commercial pilot's licence that way? Correct. I, I went to uh, a school in which only does airline type cadets these days. It's the largest academy in the Southern Hemisphere. But I was yep. uh, well behind the age line. I uh, bear in mind two of my compatriots and your compatriots from 77 had learnt to fly straight out of school and were already first officers in ANSET before I even... Before you had your first job. Before, before I had my first flying lesson. So I needed to get my commercial licence and uh, all the other qualification quite quickly. And that's why I decided to go and loop do a full-time course in Adelaide. And what do you do after that? Once you have that commercial pilot's licence, how does that segue into getting a job with Qantas? Mm-hmm. Immediately went and did a an instructor rating and was able to pick up, up a little bit of work out at Bankstown Airport as a flying instructor. I got to know people on the airfield, started to pick up a little bit of work as a charter pilot. And believe it or not, as depressed as the industry was and jobs were very hard to come by, to actually pay the rent, I was one of the night managers at the Woolwich Pier Hotel. 
So that was the only thing that really paid the uh, the rent. And uh, one night, two pilots walked in, and they were obviously, you know, in pseudo pilot uniforms to have a beer. And they were charter pilots for an air, night air freight. And long story short, uh, I became very good friends with them. They lived near the pier, and I ended up working for them. We used to deliver the papers to uh, Brisbane each night. But from that, uh, Laurie, I must admit I was very lucky. That uh, gave me the uh, the opportunity. I kept applying to regional airlines and major airlines, but I just didn't have the experience. And and then I um I got a, a job offer from Territory Airlines in Papua New Guinea, and uh, I ended up with my wife going to the one place she said she'd never go to live, and we moved to uh, New Guinea. Wow! And how did that? What happened next? So. Um, Actually, I had actually missed out at Qantas, uh, and that's good for people to know, I suppose. Soon after I got my commercial licence and 500 hours, just before I went to New Guinea, I was so green and so new, and I got called through the Qantas system, and I didn't fly the simulator that well. So uh, what actually happened was, I, to be quite honest, I didn't know you could reapply. And the chief pilot in New Guinea... Uh, was about to put mm-hmm. me onto a much larger uh, turboprop aircraft. And he said to mis- myself and a good friend who uh, got into Qantas as well, I'm not going to pay the money to endorse you on that aircraft until you both fail your Qantas interviews. And I said, oh, that's easy. I've been through a couple of years ago. And the other guy said, oh, I don't have a HSC. I don't meet the minimum criteria. He said, doesn't matter. You can reapply. So we both reapplied. Um, uh, two weeks after I reapplied, I was called down with this other bloke. Uh, we both went through the selection process, and four days after I got back to New Guinea, I got a call with a job offer to start in seven days' time. Wow. So you had to pull out of New Guinea uh, and get yourself back to Sydney. Was that your first base? It was was my first and only base. I never uh, was based out of Sydney when it happened, and the next thing I'm in uh, six months intensive training with Qantas assigned to the 747 Classic, as they say. Six months training, getting endorsed on that big plane. That was a big plane at the time, wasn't it? Oh, huge. Largest commercial airliner in the world. Mm. So your first job, was it as a second officer? As a second officer. So um, for those that aren't familiar with the word second officer, uh, a second officer is a cruise relief pilot. They don't actually take off or land the aeroplane. They also are the relief flight engineers. So in those days, the second officer had to do a flight engineer's licence as well as the endorsement on the aeroplane. And that's why part of the reason it took so long for the training. So, and then, um, yeah, Qantas was expanding very quickly. They'd just taken delivery of their first seven, six sevens, and uh, promotion uh, opportunities came about very quickly. And in 1988, only two years into the airline, I was able to do my first officer training on the um, 767, which uh, to this day I love. Beautiful looking aircraft. Flying. It, was a, it was a great aeroplane. Yeah. So very quickly, uh, yeah, very diff- from a pilot's point of view, um, a more difficult airplane to fly, believe it or not, than the Jumbo. The Jumbo is a, a gentle giant. It's a beautiful, it's a beautifully stable airplane. But 767 had a, a lot of things that could catch you out, let's say. I've never thought about it from that point of view, but I suppose they're like cars and they have different uh, characteristics. Yeah, look, very much so. Without 
trying to give everyone an aerodynamics lesson, the, uh, the 767 has what they call a very high aspect ratio wing, which makes it less stable on final approach. So if you're not flying the aeroplane all the way to the ground, it just doesn't sit there. Uh, you've got to actually fly it all the way. But the jumbo is exactly the opposite. You can, if you get it all trimmed in trim with the right power setting, it's such a large machine. The momentum of it just takes you to the runway. It's a, as I said, it's from a pilot's point of view, the jumbo is a, just a beautiful aeroplane. Have you got any favourite destinations that you travelled to, something that you'd really look forward to going to? New York and London. My wife has worked in theatre yeah. all her life and uh, like yourself, you know, you, and uh, hence she, she got me into theatre. So to be able to, uh, to go to Broadway or the West End uh, in New York and London and uh, mm. people have paid me to, to be there, just a joy. And, and just the atmosphere of both cities, I, I just love them both. If I had to choose between them, I, I just I think New York because uh, it's literally the city that never sleeps. <laughs> Gosh, it's a terrific yeah. place. It, you're actually making me feel a bit wistful uh, because we can't just get on an aeroplane and go there. And we can't go to the theatre. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So tell me about what happened next in terms of getting your command, becoming a captain. I spent a number of years as a first officer on the 767 and then the opportunity uh, came to move on to the 747-400 as mm -hmm. a first officer. So I did that and I spent four years doing that and then the opportunity came to do my initial command on the 767 and I did that and it was a time of huge expansion uh, with Qantas. There are a lot of people failing their commands so I think some people got a bit shy uh, of doing it. When I went through, 14 of the previous 17 guys and girls who had gone for command had actually not got through. So a lot of people withdrew their, uh, their nomination to, to uh, become a captain. So that moved me up the, the ranks of a couple of years, I think. And uh, when I checked out, I was one week short of 10 years in the airline and I got my fourth stripe and became a captain. So That is very quick. Well roared, Lion. <laughs> And how did you take to that? Were you comfortable being Very a captain? So. Yeah, look, it's a time uh, I remember my first sector as uh, a captain af after the training had finished. I did Sydney, Jakarta. It's like when you get your uh, piece on, with your driving, you're looking around for the instructor all the time. You think, I'm it. I've got two, yep. uh, 256 people behind me and I'm it. Believe me, no airline signs you out as a captain unless you're up to it. So you just have confidence in yourself. And you did some time in management. At Qantas, talk to me about that. Yeah, look, I I, to I did a total of thirteen years in management. In nineteen ninety seven, they asked for people who were inter interested in interviewing new pilots. I put my hand up. I got selected, and they put me through quite intensive uh, interviewing courses and psychometric courses to be able to read uh, psych reports and whatnot. And then I got a call saying, uh, will you come in and start interviewing cadets? I came in and started interviewing cadets. And the two weeks into uh, the cadets, I was told, forget the cadets. It's all on. We're, we're recruiting as hard as we can. And two months later, I was manager of pilot recruitment for the whole airline. And I was in recruitment then for five years. And in that time, uh, we changed the whole recruitment system. Talk to me about that. Talk to me about what you changed, what you saw as being that needed changing. Look, 
Traditionally, pilots have been recruited on their technical skills and their technical mm-hmm. knowledge, and, and that they've, you've still got to have those. But the world has changed in regard to what makes a good airline pilot. So years ago, when a, a Qantas aircraft left Australia, they had no communication back to Australia. They could go for weeks and never have to talk to head office or the head of engineering. And the captains were demigods, really. What they said went. And you never, never question a captain's decision. Well, the world's moved on and you're in a team environment and and it's the soft skills or the non-technical markers, they're called in aviation, of leadership, communication, uh, decision-making. These sorts of things needed to be tested and they could be tested as part of a psychometric test and then weaknesses in those tests could be looked at at an interview level. And that's the main thing we did. Qantas led the world in these non-technical markers being tested and then interviewed. And uh, the interviewers needed a lot of training to do that. And subsequently, most airlines uh, in our immediate region all moved to what we were doing. I I used to have the the, uh, head of recruitment for Malaysian Airlines, Cathay, British Airways came down. They all came in to watch what we were doing. And uh, they all eventually moved to this style. We still had to you know, test their people's flying ability. I'm glad to know that uh, they can still fly. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, you've got to be able to fly. But yeah. it's these other soft skills, working with a team and uh, not being afraid to speak up as a junior pilot, you yeah. know, to the captain and, and question his decision if you think there's a safety implication. And by and large, it's been very, very successful. I can imagine. Has there been any friction where these younger pilots that have been recruited based on, let's assume the technical skills are all identical, and then you get these younger pilots who have great collaboration skills and communication skills and ability to manage up, has there been any friction when they've sort of hopped into the first officer seat with one of the old school captains that were used to controlling Look, command? Uh, some years ago, I would say yes, because some of the, old, the uh, those older captains weren't used to this new way of running a flight deck. Yeah. But by and large, in the last 20 years, the, the old school guys had all retired. And don't get me wrong, they were magnificent captains and, and great guys to fly with. But yeah. a lot of them had gone through the Second World War. Uh, they'd had a hard life. They'd gone through a, a part of aviation that had just changed. In the last 20 years, all captains have gone through this system now. There's no conflict. Occasionally, a junior pilot may kind of question something in an inappropriate way, but but that happens in every industry. It's, you know, it's that's not, not something just aviation has. But no, look, the flight decks are very, very open. What are the main challenges of being a pilot? From a family man's point of view, being an international pilot, Laurie, I'd have to say it's been away for so long. Yeah. On the 767, I was away from home uh, seven months of the year. Right. The the 747, when I moved to that, has longer flight, so therefore you get uh, more stand-down time back home. So you're home uh, for about six months of the year. But you could never pre-plan anything. You couldn't say to me in five months' time, uh, can I book theatre tickets to see Laurie Coy in the production uh, because I just wouldn't know whether I'd be there. So that's that's one of the uh, the downsides. The other downside is 
continually being tired. You uh, you just recover from a long a couple of weeks away and then you're away again. You learn to deal with jet lag. A lot of jet lags dehydration anyway. But you know when I get to London, we go to bed. Even if it's ten o'clock in the morning, do you do that? Though, if you arrive at ten o'clock in the morning, do you go to bed at ten o'clock in the morning? I personally did. I'd go and I'd do have three or four hours sleep, mm-hmm. and, and get up and have dinner with crew. And uh, depending on how long you are in a port, if it was a very quick turnaround, you might stay on Sydney time and sleep during the day and stay up at night. And a lot of the younger pilots do that these days. I can't do that. I can't miss a, a beer before dinner and going out for dinner of a night, so I don't. Yeah. Everyone, everyone's different. Yeah. Now the other the other yeah, side. Sorry, can't no, you. the other side of downside of it, Laurie, is I don't know of any other profession that's tested so much, and you're continually studying. We have to go into the simulator four times a year, yeah. and our proficiency is tested prior to going into the simulator. We are quizzed for about an hour, and that's four times a year. Once a year, we do a full day on emergency procedures, and there's quite a quite an exhaustive exam. Yep. There's exams on dangerous goods knowledge, yep. and and of recent since nine eleven, there's quite a lot of security training as well, which is another day. So every second month, you are studying for something and then proving your proficiency. And I don't know of too many other professions that have to prove their proficiency so often. No. Hey, now, Fitz, if there's a young bloke listening to this podcast and he's thinking, yep, I've heard about the testing, I've heard about the jet lag, I've heard about the time away from the family and I'm still dead keen to become a pilot, how would he or she get started these days? Yeah, Laurie, I'm certainly not trying to put anybody off because I'd do it again in a heartbeat. It's like if you find something you love to do, uh, you'll never go to work a day in your life and that's how I feel. Yep. I, I did something that I loved. It was like Greg Norman playing golf. Yep. Never worked a day in my life and they paid me for it. So how to get into it and having been involved in recruitment for so long, can I say it is a technical job. Yep. Though you don't have to have been a rocket scientist in maths and physics and chemistry to do it. But if you're um, if you're leaning towards aviation, do maths and physics at school. Most airlines have dropped them as minimum requirements, but they will certainly help when you're studying. The other thing that's changed since my day is that a lot of the universities now have aviation degrees, and the aviation degrees attract uh, fee help and hex. So it's a good way of getting a degree and learning to fly. And I'm involved with one of the larger flying universities in Australia up in Brisbane, Griffith University. So that's a really good way to get into it. Griffith University in Brisbane, University of New South Wales in Sydney, Swinburne uh, University in Melbourne, RMIT in Melbourne, and there's a few others as well. And what's the degree fits? Well, they all are slightly different depending on the uh, uni you go to. But at Griffith, it's a bachelor degree in aviation. Right. They do a double degree in aviation and engineering. So I sit on the industry advisory board uh, at Griffith University and there is a double degree there and you learn to fly in your third year. And once you have your degree and presumably you have a good academic record, then what do you do? 
Yeah, well, the unfortunate thing is that the first 500 hours of actual flying time is the hardest to get because a lot of operators, insurers won't insure someone to do a charter uh, without 500 hours. Um, Can I just go back to say you do not need a degree to get into an airline, by the way. There are other flying schools that you can learn to fly, like I did it in Adelaide. So you can still Uh, do that? Oh, yes, absolutely. You can go to a flying school and get a commercial licence without a degree. Uh, The airlines look on very favourably on the degree, but they're not prerequisites all the time. Is one better Um, than the other fits? No, not really. Right. Uh, In some ways, see... It's made it affordable to be able to use fee help and hex, yes. Laurie. Yeah. Uh, whereas a lot of kids just could never have dreamt to learn to fly because it was just out of the, the reach of themselves or their parents. Yes. Uh, whereas, you know, and that's the beauty of living in Australia, that anybody can do anything. And, you know, the, the government, you've got to take a loan, but, hey, once you're earning money and paying it back, that's that's something, nothing. Yeah. It just makes it affordable for everybody, and that's the way it should be. Yep. So the first 500 hours is hard, Laurie. A lot of people, guys and girls, will go and get an instructor rating and uh, start to teach, and from there, a little bit like I did, they might p- pick up a bit of charter work. The big thing is you've normally got to leave the capital cities. Yep. Because the more experienced pilots all want to live in Sydney mm-hmm. uh, or Brisbane or Melbourne. So of the 900 pilots I recruited in the Qantas over those five years, I reckon one-third of them were military pilots, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. And the rest were from general aviation and other airlines, and nearly everybody from uh, general aviation had worked in the bush somewhere. They've Darwin, Kununurra, Alice Springs. New Guinea, a lot of pilots from New Guinea. So you've got to be prepared to move. Yep. And the other thing to consider when you're going into it, Laurie, is probably less than 50% of the pilots who learn to fly in Australia actually end up having their careers in Australia. You know, from our year at school, Peter O'Day yep. ended up uh, flying in Hong Kong. Yeah, uh, decades. A year ahead of us, Steve Ellis is was in Hong Kong with Cathay. And uh, Tim Anderson was Emirates yep. for most of his career in, in Dubai. Yep. So you've got to really consider that you might be a pilot in, in a major airline, but it may not be in Australia necessarily. It's a it's a worldwide industry, and Australian pilots are well trained and they're well sought after. Yeah, I bet. Now, talk to me about that military uh, transition into the airlines. It's something I didn't consider when I left school, Laurie, to go into the Air Force. Mm. But obviously when I got it to Qantas, there was a lot of ex-military pilots there and I learnt a lot more about what went on. And I'm Is it still a, leg- a legitimate transition into the, into the profession? Yes, absolutely. But don't tell your recruiting officer at the RAF you're only going to the, uh, sorry, the RAAF to go to the airlines. They want career people. But yes. they, they're extremely well trained. They're, uh, they fly the most modern technology around. And the only real downside if, if you're doing, you want to become an airline pilot eventually is their return of service obligation. Yep. Now, when we left school, the return of service obligation to was only um, six years, yep. five to six years. It's five years plus uh, training. It sits at 10 years plus training, which makes it about 11 and a half years now. So, so you're you 30 go, by the time you can yeah. apply for a job. 
Yeah, that's right. So most military guys are around 30 before they're applying to the airlines, mm. whereas if you go through the degree or just learn to fly, you should be able to be applying to an airline at around 22 to 23. So that's the only downside. Great, fits, Mate, it's been fantastic talking to you. Thanks for giving us your time. I'm looking forward to seeing you when you eventually get back to Sydney once you've eaten most of the Red Emperors that are swimming around on the Barrier Reef at the moment. Try to look after yourself up there in far north Queensland, mate, and um, you're a great bloke and it's been a terrific, uh, a terrifically interesting conversation. Thank you very much. Thanks, Laurie. Pleasure. Pleasure. And I hope some guys and girls get something out of it. Good on you, mate. Thank you very much. Thank you.